Part three of Collected Prose by James Elroy Flecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algy Pug. Pentheus. Are there any who do not know Pentheus, that harsh and surly tyrant who laid rude hands upon a god? Well might he wonder who was this long-haired, bright-cheeked stranger, with the charms of Aphrodite in his eyes, who was disturbing the peace of his kingdom, and leading the girls into profitless and presumably immoral dances on the dappled hills. What would happen to the looms and the Theban cloth industry the while? The stranger was the god Dionysius the Terrible, he whom once unwitting Aegean pirates treacherously seized, and they would have borne him a slave of price to some odorous and languid city of the south. But he knew their thoughts, and became a lion, and turned their oars to serpents, so that they leapt into the sea, dolphins, and not men, and swim desolately on to this day. And he was the god, Dionysius the Merciful, who once himself had died, as Osiris, as Attis died, to benefit mankind. Born again, he gave them wine, without which, as the messenger says in the back eye, there is no love, nor any other pleasant thing left on earth. But how should Pentheus know this? He was a man who hated all nonsense, and was not given to dancing or to drink. A religious man, no doubt, he was one of those who believe in the moral and social benefits that religion confers, and was not over-interested in miracles and myths. It is hard to persuade a man of sense that you are an angel. The voice of Bromios, the earthquake, and the fire that bring his house about his ears, the queer escape of the stranger from his prison in the stall, pain, but do not mystify his practical mind. The fire from heaven is an unfortunate accident, extinguishable by buckets. The stranger always was a clever, cunning fellow. But when Pentheus hears that his own mother has joined the revellers, that the Maenads have driven the peasants before them, and are nearing the very gates of Thebes, he falls into a panic, honest fellow that he is. Without a moment's hesitation, like one of our intrepid governors beyond the seas, he appeals to the military, and summons his armed police. It is then that a most curious thing happens. The stranger turns his deep love-eyes on Pentheus, with no loving intent, and transforms him. He begins to long for a sight of those doings on Kithairon, if only to spy them out, and to make better dispositions for his raid. In this spirit, Mr. Stead goes to the theatre, or a Methodist to Monte Carlo. Dazzled by the clear glance of the god, Pentheus begins to make himself ridiculous. The tempting, treacherous stranger decks him out as a woman, and leads him through the city, the mock of his people. As he draws near Cathairon, he too feels the ecstasy. But he is always Pentheus. His madness is but a drunken parody of mystical exultation. He dances clumsily, he sees two suns, two city gates, and the god like a bull before him. He cries out that his faith can remove literal mountains, he loosens his belt, and his gown goes all awry. The cruel god laughs and ties it up for him. It is a little wrong by the right foot, 
says Pentheus, with superb fatuity. But the other side is perfectly correct. Then suddenly the ludicrous man becomes puffed up with pride at his daring. He will be quite wicked, and see what those naughty girls are doing, dancing in the night. Disaster fell swiftly on his head. When they came to the place appointed, Dionysius bent down a pine tree and sat the poor fool on his trunk. He is shot up into the air, and on that wild eminence of branches becomes conspicuous to all. A voice calls a woman, who, led by Agave, his own mother, rush forward and root up the tree with their white arms. Pentheus falls. Death alone makes him tragic. Then he flung off his headdress, so that Agave should recognize him and not kill him. Touching her cheek, he said, I am your son Pentheus, mother, whom you bore in Echion's house. Pity me, mother, and do not kill your son for his sins. They foamed at the mouth and tore him limb from limb. So he died, suffered such a death as, according to dim legends, Dionysius himself suffered of old. This is the account of Euripides, but we cannot believe that here was an end of Pentheus. Mr. Fraser would doubtless say that he was a corn-spirit, a king who died for his people and was hung upon a tree, and that the fragments of his lacerated corpse were carried round the fields to fertilise them. If so, Pentheus should be sacrificed anew every autumn and come to life every spring. But whether this be true or not, I have discovered that Pentheus is immortal, that he has manifested himself many times since those legendary days of Thebes, and, moreover, that he is alive to-day. Many years after, in a land south-east of Hellas, there arose a successor to Dionysius, a preacher of joy. He advised men to cease fasting, to neglect the law, and to honour above all things love. He proclaimed a golden age of happiness and peace. Pentheus, who was ruling at the time, could not stand this. All his philosophic idealism, all his respect for law and custom, was outraged by what appeared to him a wanton and anarchical subversion of principles that had stood the test of time. He had his revenge for his old maltreatment. Not he but the god was called the man of sorrows. Not Pentheus hung upon the tree. Now, thought he, I shall have no more of those deep love-eyes. But the god rose again, a hundredfold stronger. His servants went forth to mountains, his servants went forth to mountains and caves, saw visions and sang hymns, rejoicing in the mysteries of their salvation. Cold and heat, stripes and fasting, hurt them no more than they hurt the maenads on the mountain. Then Pentheus, seeing himself badly worsted, made friends with the god, as he had made friends with Dionysius. He stipulated that dancing should be more private, and that maenads and satyrs should be less eccentrically clothed. He relegated the mystic feasts to the seventh day, and saw that all initiates were taught their duty to Pentheus. The rest of the week he kept them at the bitter loom. He thus succeeded, for he was a very powerful king, in turning the religion into a support of his own power, and the worshippers began to neglect their deity. There was little joy to be found in his service, 
Now that there were no more dances or visions, nothing but an outward correctitude and inward impurity, Perpentheus was ever of the tribe of Angelo. A little more than a hundred years ago, a new god began to disturb the empire of Pentheus, a god of liberty and war, perhaps a new emanation of Mithras the Liberator, who also wore the red Phrygian cap. Pentheus pleaded for his life, for he found the ways of this new disturber short and sharp. I am a brave man myself, he said. I am not at all averse to war. Indeed, it is one of my favourite occupations. And as for liberty, why, a reasonable freedom, on a sound legal and moral basis, has been my ideal for years. The god with the Phrygian cap, however, merely laughed, seven times perhaps, as old magic liturgies say he laughed when the world was made. His servants rent Pentheus into more parts than he ever knew he possessed, and his blood streamed through all Europe. But years had increased his power of resurrection. No one will ever destroy Pentheus now, for he finds a northern climate highly beneficial to his health, and thrives better on potatoes and beef than on olives and honey. Today a new god calls to him, a god who can find few to come to him from the vast kingdom of Pentheus. He does not taunt the tyrant. He tries to woo him instead. Come out and love, Pentheus, he says softly. Leave your ridiculous concerns, your childish politics, your amusingly ugly towns. There are lands where sunlight and harmony are not yet dead. There are the absurdest poets leading lobsters on strings, and charming all sylvan beasts by their pleasant ways. The girls are still dancing out in the fields. We have even found someone who still knows how to make a garland. Pentheus, come out and live. Then that man answers. My dear sir, I am entirely with you. You must not imagine that in the midst of my more serious occupations I have neglected, or even desired to neglect, the interests of art. So impetuous you young divinities are, you know, he continues, with a smile, for he has lost his old surliness, and become quite an affable and portly old fellow now. I need only refer to my art galleries, to the Royal Academies, and to the great efforts I have made to provide all who come to the county council schools with a sound grounding in English literature, starting with Beowulf, and tracing the gradual development of idealism down to the death of Tennyson. Then you might take some interest, Pentheus, in those who are writing at the present day. Most of them have to add up figures or something equally absurd, and the rest are almost starving. Now, come, come. There's a civil service pension. You can't expect me to look upon these young men with favour. They don't make one feel better, like Ruskin did. They have such curious manners, too, and may be addicted, for all I know, to drink or something. At all events, one cannot judge a man's work till he is dead. As for your suggested orgies, I should think you might be satisfied with the pageants that every summer enliven our rural district. Then the sad Dionysius of today gets wroth with Pentheus, and says to him, as he said of old, Thou dost not see, thou dost not know what thou livest, nor who thou art. He replies now, as then, I am Pentheus, the son of Agave and Echion. I am Hobson, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Hobson.
Alas, poor Pentheus, happy enough are you feeding on the fat of the land and oppressing the people, so long as the air does not tremble to the faint echo of a madman's song. What is this folly? says Pentheus. I am a rational being. I have a cultivated imagination. I am a respectable member of society. My religion is religion of all good men. Leave me in peace. The poor man is right. He is always right. But his well-meaning philanthropy is a grim parody of divine goodness. His paltry cruelty, a dim reflection of the divine vengeance that may fall on him yet again. His knock-kneed honour is pale before the blazing glory of our faith. His humdrum days may be pleasant or painful. He has never tasted of our purple grapes of heavy sorrow, our golden grapes of superhuman joy. Alas, poor Pentheus! End of Part 3